Welcome to the ISA's Our Reviews podcast, a series bringing you conversations with researchers and tree care experts about current issues in arboriculture. I'm Philip Van Wassner, your host on this episode of Our Reviews. And today we're in Toronto, my hometown, and I'm joined by Dr. Carl Nicholas. Carl received his doctorate in plant biology at the University of Illinois, Urbana, and currently works at Cornell as the Liberty Hyde Bailey Professor of Plant Biology and the Stephen H. Wells Presidential Fellow. Today we'll be talking about why trees fall down. So hello Carl and thank you very much for joining us. Well good morning Philip, it's very nice to meet you and it's an honor and a pleasure to be interviewed. Well thank you and uh, I I, uh, would say welcome from the ISA and we're really pleased to have you as our keynote speaker at the conference and I'm, I'm personally very much looking forward to your talk tomorrow. But um, we have a few questions to, to talk about today, and, and uh, your, your talk tomorrow will be about uh, mechanical behavior of trees, why trees fall down. So why do you think it's important to try to predict the failure behavior of trees? Well, only because trees, when they fail, can cost life, limb, and property and all sorts of civil actions. So consequently, the mechanical stability of a tree or of trees is particularly important. I was once a consultant for the New York City Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is often called the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, but it isn't technically that. And these giant floats pass by huge, huge old trees around the perimeter of Central Park. And there have been a few accidents that have caused uh, damage, uh, not just to property, but to human lives. And that then opens up a Pandora's box of litigation. Absolutely. So what can arborists, because we are at an arboriculture conference and and the arborists are the the people who actually get in the trees day to day, what can they currently assess when they're in the field um, with the knowledge that we currently have of tree biomechanics? Well, you can get a fairly good estimate about the mechanical stability of a tree with a few rather rudimentary measurements. Um, The two kinds of forces that induce mechanical failure are really pretty simple. One is self-loading, and that is what's the weight and the orientation of the branches in question. The other is a lot more complicated, and that's the dynamic wind loading that a tree might experience, that kind of catastrophic loading. And the two are additive. So the kind of assessment of mechanical stability that you get based on just looking and measuring a tree um, is sort of just the baseline. It's the estimate of wind loading and things of that sort that become very important. So the structural stability of a tree, the health of a tree, of course, all of those things are comparatively easy to assess and important. And so. You're, uh, let's say, one of our North American leading researchers in this realm, and uh, so I'm wondering, from your perspective, um, what do you think are some of the topics in tree biomechanics that actually require more research to improve our understanding of trees? One thing I know from my experience is that in the, in the forest literature, we have a lot of research about trees, but they're generally about trees in a forest setting. And so we here in, in arboriculture are more interested in trees that are in an urban setting, more single trees with different kinds of things going on around them. 
So where do you see, from your experience, um, places where we need more research? Well, there's a whole field called plantilometry, which is uh, basically a fancy way of saying, as something gets bigger, how does its proportions change over time? What's the scaling relationships between, for example, the amount of leaves, the amount of above ground parts, the lateral extent of root systems, things of that sort. And we do know from uh, measurements that trees growing in clusters have very different allometric relationships than isolated trees. Uh, and of course, if you start removing trees from a cluster of trees, the trees that remain actually are less mechanically stable because of not just the fact that they're not sheltered from the wind by their neighbors, which have been removed, but also because those trees actually grew very differently. So it, an isolated tree is particularly prone to certain types of failure. Um, one of the, uh, I believe, very seriously un misunderstood uh, areas is the relationship between below ground mass and above ground sale area. We know from the measurements that we've taken on thousands of trees in terms of allometry that the root system actually doesn't grow proportionally as fast as the above ground parts. So as a tree gets older, its probability of mechanical failure at the trunk root interface increases very significantly. And it's particularly true for deciduous trees uh, because when they flush out with leaves and they produce a huge sail area, uh, they can produce what's called a huge bending moment. So that's a force times the lever arm. And the maximum bending moment is right at the base of the trunk. So if there's any mechanical um, rotting, things of that sort, that, that becomes a very problematic tree. Um, it's an interesting, interesting subject. I've uh, talked a lot and read a lot about. So what would you say from your research if we had to take, let's say, a general relationship between the above ground biomass and the below ground biomass? If you had to say the average urban tree, what would you estimate that uh, relationship uh, to be? Uh, the below ground mass for a fully mature, and I do mean fully mature, like a 200-year-old oak, is about one-third. It's about one-third. One-third. So there's one-third. So when you look up at a tree and you see all of that wood that's up there. That's two-thirds. That's two-thirds. That's the two but, but a third of that, or half of what you see above, is actually in right. wood below ground. Yes. I think that's something which many people don't understand. Right, uh, right. Certainly we see in, in my work that, you know, I think one of the biggest threats to trees is the below ground area. You know, we, t we have focused for almost constantly on yep. above ground in our boriculture, but in our tight urban spaces, it's that restriction yep. uh, on, on the below ground parts right, that's right. becoming more And a tree growing um, uh, along a street the, tr the root growth is not going to be as luxuriant, and it's also going to be much more confined. Because one of the things that really helps stabilize the root system is the extent to which the roots can grow laterally. So if you have a very confined below ground space for that rooting system, you can think of it sort of as a tree growing in a giant pot. And once those roots come up against something that doesn't give, um, they obviously can't grow laterally outward. And uh, the, the really great uh, 
difficulty that any kind of root system faces is in, and this is a no-brainer, um, a wet storm. Because what happens is, uh, in addition to the water that's collecting on the leaves and branches, which adds weight, there's also a bending moment, the wind force. But talking about roots, things get even worse because as the rain penetrates the soil, begins to liquefy the soil. And that soil has a lower probability of, of keeping the roots stable. The, the roots, the, at least some of the feeder roots, can actually be sliding out of the soil. And, uh, and so where do you see the current state of research with regards to some of these things, the risk of trees, the biomechanics, some of these uh, mechanical aspects looking at bending moments, where do you see that current research is with regards to trees? And I think um, there's a whole realm of area called damping, and that is how does uh, a large branched structure oscillate and move uh, in a turbulent kind of wind environment. And damping can do good things and it can do bad things. Um, if you have a tree that is configured properly, its different levels of branchings are moving in such a way that it dissipates the mechanical energy that is held in the canopy. And that can help stabilize a tree. Uh, if it's not done the right way, you can go into reinforced harmonics, which means that the thing is beginning to oscillate in a, in a, in a principal frequency way that increases the probability of failure. So one of the things that we really need to have is more information about the consequences of pruning. <laughs> I was just going to ask that question. I was going to say, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to look at that or if you know of anybody who has that's actually... Well, I know that uh, Dr. Ed Gilman has been doing some of that work right. with, with smaller trees, but it would, I'm, I'm interested to know, has anybody looked at bigger trees and the effect of pruning? Very, very few people have. Uh, some people in Germany with whom I've collaborated and some people in Denmark. Uh, the curious thing about that is it depends on the kind of tree that you actually study. And so the simplest trees to study in a mathematical way uh, are... Um, conifers. Not all trees are conifers. <laughs> and so what you learn about a, a spruce tree can't really be applied uh, with a certain degree of precision to something like an oak tree or a poplar. So one of the things that I think we need to get is a large database of reporting tree failures, explaining how the tree failed and under what conditions that tree failed, building up a statistical database that would then allow researchers to go in and f just start a, a, a kind of a general data analysis program. And as I'm unaware of any such large databases. Well, let me bring you up to speed a little <laughs> bit. There is a um, tree failure database. Uh, it was started in California. And it's been expanded to be an international tree failure database. However, it's, again, one of these many things because it's not a forest. It's not forest products coming from it. We're talking about urban trees. So it has been a program that has suffered a bit from, from support. Um, and so it's been moving up and down. But the idea is that it's a program that arborists who are dealing with trees can report into to help build up exactly the database you're, ask, you're asking about and that would be helpful. The problem we always have is 
you know, I know as an arborist, uh, many times you come to a failed tree, the job is, how are we going to get this off the house? Uh, the, the homeowners are in a panic. They're worried that their insurance costs are going to go up. So the first thing is get the crew in and start dealing with it rather than, you know, if it's me, I'm the guy who goes around after storms and looks at trees and, 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 and is interested in it. Uh, but there's not so many people that have yeah. the luxury of that time. Yeah, we're not, I think it's true both from the research side and the practical side, we're not proactive, we're reactive. We generally see things after they've failed right. uh, rather than, than trying to, well, we always try and prevent the failure, but it's never possible to be 100% correct and accurate. So I have, a, I, I have a, maybe a somewhat personal question with regards to this. I've been working with uh, tree pulling tests and, and those are based on statics engineering mm -hmm. principles. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on what some of the shortcomings might be of that or how we might improve upon looking at trees from a statics perspective to incorporate some of the dynamic aspects that you've been talking about? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is where do you attach the pull? Uh, the location really uh, can't just be eyeballed. What you really have to do is get a sense of where the center of mass of the canopy is. Mm -hmm. And to do that is not easy. Uh, and there's actually fairly large error bars. So I would suggest that if you do, if anyone engages in a pulling test, they put, they do a variety of pull tests uh, in terms of placement within the canopy. Uh, because we, what you're really interested in, at least primarily, is what is the maximum bending moment uh, and what's the give of the tree? How much does it deflect? Well, again, a bending moment is uh, a force multiplied by the distance over which that force acts. So you can think about the wind drag generated by a canopy as the total force, but the point is where is the center of that force statistically then going to be uh, exerted at the base of the trunk. So that's one thing that I would recommend. Right. Okay, and, and then with some of the knowledge that we are um, <coughs> accruing in this field, how do you think that we can um, help arborists who are out in the field with, with what we know so far? Are there any general recommendations you might make off the, off the top yeah. of your head? Yeah, okay. One of the ones that comes immediately to mind is that all plant tissues, including wood, fail much more quickly in shearing than in bending. So in other words, tension, compression, uh, failure is less likely than shearing. So where is a tree going to shear? Really, Can you just explain how, okay. what you mean by, by shearing? shearing? Okay, so if you put the palm of your hand on the top of the desk and you slide it, you can feel what's called shear. It results from friction between two surfaces. So it's not something that's placed under direct compression and it's not something that's directly pulled. It's something that's slid. Okay. That's shearing. Okay. okay. So where are trees likely to shear? It's in the crotch of a branch. And that's usually a place where the grain of the wood is aligned longitudinally between two planes of shear. So that's a high probability of failure, particularly since in older trees, those crotches tend to be associated with a little bit of rot because of the accumulation of humus and 
organic debris. So that would be the first place that I would start looking at a tree to assess its probability of failing under any kind of circumstances. So when you have trees that have a single vertical trunk, like, uh, well, spruce, mm -hmm. things of that sort, you don't have so much of that problem. But when you have something that is a highly branched, di diversified tree, again, like an oak or a maple, uh, then you really have to look at the entire infrastructure of the canopy. And that can be very time-consuming and expensive. Well, it's also, um, it's also tricky. I had, a, I had a case just recently. A client has an old oak tree. Mm -hmm. And a branch pulled out, and I was wondering, is this a summer branch drop phenomena? And when I looked at it very carefully, I think that the structure of the branch explained things because it's a 150-year-old tree. The attachments are stronger on the underside. There was a slightly uh, included part at the top where there was no connection. And there was another branch beside it which restricted some of its attaching ability. So. Um, one thing we say in structure of trees, don't have major branches side by side. This was one of the first times after 15 or 20 years looking at trees that I saw why that can be an issue. Because mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, the branch was healthy. There was no significant decay that was causing the problem. But I think at a certain point, the mechanical ability of the wood at the attachment was yeah. outweighed by the weight on the branch. Yeah. But even with you know my fairly extensive background looking at these things, uh, I think I would have had a very tough time predicting that that branch was going to fall out. So um, it is, it is, you know, I think it, it reiterates that we are, we are in need of more research and, and things that we can learn from the research to bring down to the arborist level for their day-to-day -day observations where we can see these, these problems beginning. And one of the take-home messages for me is that biomechanics is a very imperfect science, not because it's conceptually incomplete, which it is, but it's because biology is very squishy. There's a lot of variation. And so, for example, what appears to be an extremely healthy branch can fail because of microstructural uh, flaws in it, that th there's just no way even the most experienced arborists could see. And I would say arborists have one of the hardest jobs on, on the planet because, of course, if you, do the wrong, if you make the wrong call, uh, you can be prone to some very intense litigation, but the average person doesn't realize how difficult it is to make an assessment. We had a tree that uh, was about 10 centimeters in diameter on Cornell campus, perfectly, perfectly healthy. I actually saw it fall down, it broke at the base of the trunk, and there was hardly a wind. It just fell. And when we started to look at the base of the trunk, it was riddled with fungi. But there was no external indication that that tree was unhealthy. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, but yeah. there was no way anybody would have predicted that tree dying. Well, I think that's a really good point because I've also been involved in sort of that legal side when things go wrong and and oftentimes experts like to come after the tree failed and say oh you should have known that was obvious and it's very easy to say that when the tree's on the ground and everything's exposed and something's happened yeah but when you put it all back together and put it there like you said you can have a 
be looking at a perfectly healthy tree and tomorrow it's on the ground yeah. and the day before nobody could have predicted yeah. that so it, it does make it challenging yeah one of my neighbors had <coughs> an oak tree in her backyard and I would say it was a, the trunk was over a meter and a half in diameter it was almost completely hollow. It was about four centimeters in, in, in thickness. And it didn't fall. She decided to remove the tree. And when they started to cut into it, they were just amazed that the whole trunk was virtually hollow. And of course, nobody's gonna go tapping on a tree trunk to see whether and how it sounds unless there's a reason to tap on a tree trunk. Absolutely, yeah. and that's you're you're speaking close to my heart in some of these things because I think that's another thing. Arborists commonly are told cavities, hollows are bad. There, it's a defect in the tree, and it's you know something to worry about. It is, but I think you can relate to having looked at a lot of trees. That I know I've looked at a heck of a lot of trees that I can walk into with uh, six of my colleagues, and they're two thousand years old. And they're standing up. Yeah. And so we have to be, I think we have to well, the, be careful about hollowness. It's really interesting about hollowness because uh, I just wrote a paper with a, a very good friend of mine, Hans Christoph Spatz, mm -hmm. who's at the university in Freiburg. And we did some computer simulations about hollow tree trunks. And it turns out that um, hollow tree trunks aren't all that bad. What really matters is the the length of the trunk versus the thickness of the rind. And that's been misunderstood by Klaus Maciek and others for a long time. Um, if, if you make a diagram of the distribution of bending stresses or shearing stresses, what you see is in all of those cases, the central part of the cross-section experiences virtually no mechanical stress. So putting mass in that center is really not contributing to mechanical stability. What it does do, though, is give ballast. It gives a, a vertical mass to that thing. And so that helps tree trunks essentially withstand very large bending moments. So we've got to be a little cautious about uh, saying that all hollow trunks are bad. It really depends on circumstances and it depends on how hollow that trunk is. And it also depends on the kind of wood involved. Well, and, and that, you know, this is one of the reasons why I actually approached the whole tree pulling and tree statics is that it not only is taking direct measurements of the trees, but it's very much um, aware of exposure factor is the tree right. in the city is it in in the field right. um, aerodynamic drag characteristics of crowns right. um, tall skinny trees are uh, basically inherently weaker than short fat trees all sure. of these things need to be taken into consideration sure. in in an assessment I, I mean in the ideal circumstance it would be really kind of nice to um, build scale models of the buildings that are in around the trees and to do some simple wind tunnel studies to look at where there's turbulence, where there's shear stresses in the wind. And those kinds of things uh, require money. Mm -hmm. And so we really just don't have uh, the funding to do those kinds of experiments. Thank you. Well, I think this has been excellent. I, I really enjoyed having you here today. Thank you. Thank you.